Welcome again to Profiles on Channel 18, Nantucket Community Television. I'm Charlie Walters. My guest today is Nigel Goss, and before we get going with the interview, I want to read a few of the things he has done. Forgive me for consulting a list, but you'll understand why I'm doing it that way. You may have seen and heard him playing piano with the Nantucket Yacht Club, or in the band Foggy Roots. He's also a member of that band. They play frequently on Nantucket. The Dreamland Theater had a series of uh, concerts, I guess you'd call them, back during COVID, and you may have seen Nigel playing a violin-piano duet with Graham Durovich. He's also conducted the Community Big Band, which he continues to do. Uh, he has taught at the Lighthouse School. He's been the musical director of the Unitarian Universalist Church, and he still is. He's played a an acoustic bass, a stand-up bass, a bass fiddle, whatever you want to call it, in jazz ensembles. He's also played electric bass guitar. Most recently, he played in a small band, again at the Dreamland Theater, before Joan Baez was interviewed by Maureen Orth in the Nantucket Film Festival. He was there playing Joan Baez songs within about 30 or 40 feet of Joan Baez herself. I'm going to stop there because if I continue with a list like this, there wouldn't be time for the interview, which, of course, is why we're here. Nigel, thank you for doing this. Thanks. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an honor. How did this all start, and how old were you? Um, music. Uh, I think my... I, I remember being attracted to music at a really, really early age. Um, and then, you know, through my probably early teens, um, that kind of attraction became more of a passion. And then um, after the passion came the drive and the work ethic, I guess. So that's like a brief overview. And then, um, you, you know, specifically, I can think back to sort of some experiences in my early childhood that uh, may have led to this desire to create a career as a musician. And then the same thing through my teens and, and uh, college experience as well. Just before we started the tape, you told the story of buying your first CD. I never heard that story, so why don't you repeat it now? Sure. Um, so I think probably when I was about five or six years old, um, my mom said to me, um, it's time to get you into music. And she took me to the local music store, CD store, um, because those existed back then <laughs> in the early 90s. Um, and she told me that I could pick out any CD that I wanted. Now, this CD store happened to be owned by you. This was Musical on uh, what street was it? It was on East Chestnut Street. East Chestnut Street, right below, I think, what was then Sushi by Yoshi. And well, it was right next door. Uh, that space is now the kitchen for the restaurant town. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, Pizza Gemelli is now up the street as well, so yes. things do change. But anyway, so we went down into, the, into the, the basement down there, and you go down these long set of stairs, and you get into this room full of tapes and CDs and records and all sorts of stuff. And uh, I remember just browsing through the stacks and not really having any direction or, or particular opinion about what I wanted. Uh, I mean, this is my 36-year-old self recalling my six-year-old self, so who knows how the memories have changed. But um, I remember hitting upon the, the Beatles stack and going through that one and picking out Abbey Road and saying, that's the one I wanted. Don't know um, how I came to that decision, but um, it definitely, I, it, that experience and then sort of subsequently falling in love with the Beatles and um, uh, both their music and the characters themselves um, uh, definitely led to some of my early attraction for music. Um, I remember um, an old armchair that my parents had in the living room. And if you sit facing an armchair, it looks a lot like a drum set. Like the two arms become little drums and the back of the chair becomes a, a rack of cymbals and then you can stomp on the floor to pretend that you're hitting the, the drum pedals and that kind of thing. Um, and so I'd sit there and bang along with uh, with the Beatles records. My dad had an old pair of drumsticks. 
um, and a practice pad because uh, he had been a timpani major in college. And then um, I also remember building bass guitars out of Legos and rubber bands and playing along with the Beatles records oh with those. <laughs> this is probably you know anywhere from like six to eight years old, give or take. Um, and then um, I think it really sort of solidified uh, when there were a couple, uh, my parents rented the basement apartment to a couple of musicians um, for the summer. And, um, you know, they were probably in their early 20s and, and um, were playing around town doing gigs at the Brotherhood and um, uh, what was the tap room at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd go see and hear them. And um, the bass player, Scott, ended up sort of showing me a few things on the bass guitar and gave me my first acoustic bass guitar. And um, uh, I think I was kind of not quite off to the races after that, but um, I remember playing around with the sounds and, and sort of uh, inventing a few of my own little licks. Um, the th he first showed me the a couple of scales, the Dorian scale and the Mixolydian scale for anyone who's a, um, a music nerd out there, and uh, the chromatic scale, and um, a couple of bass lines, and yeah, I just kind of tooled around with it for a few years. And then um, when I was 14, I remember flipping through a stack of CDs that I intended to sell back to your music store <laughs> <laughs> to get a couple of a uh, couple of dollars. I think you could sell them back for four dollars a piece if they were in good condition back then. Um, and uh, I found a record by a band called Primus that I had had bought and didn't uh, didn't qu immediately fall in love with. But there were two uh, live tracks on the end of this album. Um, and that band was really heavily bass-driven. The uh, bass guitarist, lead singer, songwriter, uh, Les Claypool, is kind of a, a really unique um, and interesting force on sort of the late 80s, early 90s, West Coast um, grunge rock metal scene. Um, and that band was uh, enjoyed some sort of cult popularity for a long time. And um, I remember listening to these two live tracks and the, the bass intro to one of them just sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I remember just being stunned by kind of the power of that instrument and that music. And um, I think that's when um, the passion really started. And I, I started to really attack the bass and learn as much as I can. Um, and I started, you know, from there I started playing bands in high school and um, um, just took in as much as I possibly could. Uh, there were some really good theory classes in high school taught by Barbara Elder. And um, uh, I did chorus and high school band, um, which is where I learned to read and then um, eventually applied to uh, music school. Um, the two options at the time were you either go to jazz school or, or classical school and I played bass guitar so I, classical school was um, out of the question so I applied to a couple of jazz colleges. Uh, the one that I really wanted to get into was called Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, Washington and uh, it was pretty lucky because that was the only one that accepted me. Um, looking back on that particular moment, um, I didn't really have any experience with jazz. There wasn't a ton of exposure here on, on the island. There weren't uh, sort of jazz teachers or jazz musicians performing around town. So there wasn't, there was no real way for me to um, become familiar with the music. Um, so I'm not really sure why they accepted me, but they did. And I got in, I went to, uh, I did four years of undergrad there, which is where I started practicing the double bass as well. Had you played that before then? No. 
No, I yep. started when I was 20, sophomore year of college. Let me ask you a technical question before mm -hmm. we go on. Sure. Um, my understanding is that um, a bass violin can be tuned two different ways. Okay. As a violin or as a guitar. Is that correct? Yeah, there are some uh, double bassists who tune their instruments in fifths, which is the way a cello, viola, and violin are tuned. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some, I think probably most bassists tune theirs in fourths, which is the way a guitar would be tuned. And what did you learn? Uh, fourths. fourths. It's the same, as a, same tuning as a bass guitar. So the, I, I guess it wasn't really a new way of thinking about the instrument, sort of the, the, the map of the instrument is the same, like the notes, you know, the notes on the, on the G string are still the same on both instruments. Um, and then, um, but the, the technique is obviously different. You're going from here to here, um, and there are no Markers or yeah. any any or frets. Know, yeah, yeah, no visual guides for a, a player to to reference, um, and that was a really really interesting experience because that was the moment where I realized that in order to play this instrument accurately, you had to um, you couldn't rely on where the notes were. You you know you couldn't say well this is what the note looks like. Um, I, I realized that you had to know what the notes sound like. So I spent uh, about my first eight months um, practicing the double bass um, with a, a reference pitch or a drone. And then I would play through each note and I'd really try to listen to it. And I would um, uh, uh, sort of through that process learn the relationship between each notes, uh, e each note and every other note. So if my drone pitch was C, I had to know what an A flat sounded like in that context. I would have to know what an F sounded like in that context. I have to know what, you know, pick any other note. And they have a certain resonance that you start, start to become with, familiar with over time. And then once you n can recognize the correct resonance or relationship between the notes, then you have to be able to get to it accurately every time you go for it. So if again, if the reference pitch is C and I want an A flat, I have to know what it sounds like and then I have to get my fingers there. And close enough is not good enough. Close enough is not good enough, uh, yeah. It's, it's going to sound screwy. Exactly, it does. How many hours a day during those eight months were you working on that? Um, I think in college I started practicing uh, pretty regularly two hours a day. After college I bumped it up to five, six, eight hours a day because I had the time. Um, I got my living expenses down really low so that I only had to work my day job about ten days a month. And then I would spend the rest of the time practicing and um, uh, doing whatever gigs came my way. And at that point, what gigs were coming your way? Um, I was in Seattle at the time. There were a couple of uh, couple of rock bands um, that I did some semi tours with, and um, uh, some little pickup bands around town. I remember getting a gig as the uh, the house band for a vocal jam session. So it was me, a drummer, a piano player, and we would all. Um, we would go once a month to a jazz club called Lucid, and um, we were the accompanists for any vocalist who wanted to come in and sort of workshop or perform their songs. And you would have been playing double bass, I assume, and not a bass guitar? I or? did play bass guitar on that gig because the, the repertoire was wide. Sometimes we'd play standards, sometimes they'd call uh, funk or pop songs and that kind of thing. And that was challenging because I think I didn't know many tunes at that point. So, you know, we'd pull up a chart, the vocalist would come up, call a song, request a key, and we'd sort of scramble to find a chart, or I'd be watching the piano player's left hand and he'd call out the chords and that kind of thing, and that was sort of the process there. Um, now, had you done sight reading before you got to Cornish? Yes, yeah, in high school band, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't a completely yeah. new territory for you. Yeah. Um, at some point, you started to learn how to play a keyboard. I did, yeah. And when was that? Um, I started practicing piano in earnest when I was 26. 
That's relatively late in the game. Yes, very, very late in the game, yeah. Um, and uh, I did it because at the time I had moved back to Nantucket and um, I recognized that there was uh, there weren't enough keyboard players and um, there wasn't quite enough work as a bass player on the island. I was doing a, quite a, a, a number of gigs, um, but I thought, okay, if I start practicing now, I might be able to pick up some work here on this instrument, um, you know, in a few years. And I started to sort of uh, insert myself into any musical situation I could that uh, didn't have keyboards. Um, I would sub at some of the churches. Um, playing organ, I assume. Playing, usually piano, a little usually bit of organ. Piano, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, organ um, has always remained uh, sort of uh, too, too steep a learning curve for me to want to try and climb. You know, that's just. And why is that? Um, I really like to do things correctly and, 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 you know, in, in, in the style that's appropriate for whatever musical context. And th I think the uh, mental and physical techniques that you have to acquire to perform an organ correctly are... out of reach, maybe not out of reach. I think they're acquirable for anyone with um, a, a bit of a bit of talent and the right work ethic. Um, but I just haven't wanted or had the time to put into that instrument to really do it justice. So I, if it's I were, a, it's it, a keyboard, but it's not at the end. Exactly. Yeah. It's and it's it's mostly the feet. It's yeah. it's. You, you're playing three keyboards. You have two uh, t keyboard manuals that you access with your hands, but you also have a keyboard manual that you access with your feet. So the feet technique is is um, uh, one aspect of it, and I think the other aspect that would really that really separates organ players from keyboard players is the way they combine sounds and the way they uh, pull the stops and the draw bars and that kind of thing and, and create different sound textures with the instrument. Um, and that's something that I really respect and admire and wouldn't, um, uh, I, I think it would take a lot of study to get good at, you know. But you didn't continue with the drums, I take it. I didn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that never really took. Uh, do you play any other instruments? Um, I can, I, I know my way around a guitar. Um, I played trumpet in the elementary school band, um, and I can still, I still know my way around that. Uh, um, and, um, I remember picking up a ukulele one Friday afternoon because I recognized that it would be a pretty good teaching tool for my work at the lighthouse school. And, um, I learned that instrument pretty fluently in the space of a couple hours. Um, and just being sort of stunned at how easy the instrument was and recognizing that I did have a music degree at that point and a bunch of experience on some other instruments. So I may have been uh, sort of primed for the learning experience. Um, but uh, ukulele is definitely a, a great instrument to just pick up and learn a few things quickly. Well, it's an instrument that's had quite a renaissance in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. When I was a little boy, um, it was kind of a joke. Yep. Um, but it's not a joke anymore. No, it's it not. It hasn't been for a while. And there are some people who are doing, are doing astounding things with the ukulele, too. That's true. Yeah. I've seen some stuff on YouTube that mm -hmm. you know, my jaw dropped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's not a toy. No, no, it's not. What about composing? Um, com composing for me has always sort of been a, uh, uh, a, um, I, I, I guess I do it out of necessity. I like composing and I have a number of compositions that I've, I've made at this point that I'm proud of. Um, but 
it's usually, I usually do it when I want some music for an occasion and that music doesn't exist yet. So I think like, oh, I need a piano piece for this that has this certain effect or whatever it is. And I'm looking through my books of music and I'm thinking, ah, this doesn't do it, that doesn't do it, this doesn't do it, that maybe does it, but I can't quite learn it in the time that I have, so I'll write something. And then I, you know, I approach it like that. Um, I sort of rarely write for my own sake. Um, so is there, is this written down somewhere? Yeah, I have, I have charts. Some of it's in my head, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, I have... Um, lead sheets of various tunes that I've written. Um, I did present a concert of original music at one point. This was probably a few summers back um, at the, uh, through the Unitarian Church Noonday concert series. Um, I can't remember, I think Diane Lehman was the music director at that point. Um, well, we've obviously done arranging, and to me, arranging is a kind of composing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like you to talk about the, the violin duet um, set that you recorded for the Dreamland Theater during COVID, yeah. when people couldn't go out to concerts. And you and Graham Durovich, the violinist, mm -hmm. were playing, I guess, your arrangements, meaning the two of you. Right. Arrangements and adaptations of folk songs, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's actually a really, that has been a really interesting project for me in the past uh, couple of years. Um, in that the way fiddle tunes are structured is that there's a, the, the melody exists and then the accompaniment is sort of whatever you want to make it. And that's kind of um, the, uh, I guess as a sideman, that's sort of my happy place is where um, I get to create something interesting around an existing melody. Um, Wait, but you thought of yourself as a sideman? In that, yeah, in most really? contexts, I think of myself as a sideman. Because it didn't come across that way in, okay. in what I'm talking about, the with right. Graham. Yeah, I, I, and I, I, I can see how, I can see how it, it presents that way, you know, we're, we're both sort of in it, uh, and featured equally. Um, but, um, my job in that situation is to create an accompaniment to a melody and make that accompaniment, um, uh, to, to give it a shape so that it, it has an arc, maybe it starts sparse and then builds up and then tapers down or, um, uh, uh, creates dynamic energy that, you know, moves the music along. Um, and uh, fiddle players can do this solo. Uh, you can just have a solo fiddle and have that same sort of shape through the music. But then when you add accompaniment, um, it, it, I think of it as sort of elevating the music to another level. And um, so with that project, I did sort of my best imitation of traditional Irish, uh, or in this case, um, Nova Scotia-based piano accompaniment. But since I'm not a Nova Scotia-based pianist accompanist, um, I bring all of my experience to it, which includes the jazz and the classical and the pop and you know all sorts of different chord voicings and rhythm, uh, rhythmic ideas. And then um, I try to create something that is interesting and satisfying for me and that I think serves the music um, as well as I possibly can. Um, well, I, I particularly enjoyed that because I'd read the description of it before I heard it. Mm -hmm. And what impressed me in particular was the way that the two of you combined the folk elements with the non-folk elements, but it, it, it was seamless. You, you, you couldn't see the stitches where you, right. where you brought them together. I mean, it, it was, in a way, you'd gone beyond those two categories and created another category, a third category, 
based on those categories. It didn't sound like paint by numbers at all. That's really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for that. Um, that's a pretty high compliment. And I think that's sort of what I was going for. And th- that right there, that sort of description is how I believe fusion is created in, in uh, you know, the, the, the word fusion um, as sort of a musical genre is where you kind of take two um, separate or unconnected genres and combine them in some way, and then you create a third genre. Um, sometimes it's really obviously tied to its roots, and then sometimes it sounds very, very different from um, its roots. And... Um, uh, maybe a good historical example would be um, I, I, I mean my, my mind goes back to sort of the birth of jazz um, where you take uh, sort of European classical harmonic ideas with um, you know African rhythmic sensibilities and you put them together and you get um, you get jazz and blues and that evolves into rock and roll and that evolves into um, f- funk and disco and hip-hop and uh, you know the it's sort of interesting to kind of trace the the roots of the tree and then notice the branches of that particular musical tree as it goes Sometimes they came back. They come back and meet. I mean, exactly. So-called jazz hyphen rock. Right. It wasn't jazz. It wasn't rock, but mm-hmm. it had elements of both. Right. And um, Miles Davis was one of the first people to do that. And when the album mm-hmm. "Bitches Brew" came out, mm-hmm. nobody knew what to do with it. And he right. was interviewed at the time, and he said, "What do you call this?" He said, "I don't know what you call it." Yeah. I mean, there isn't a name for this stuff. It's just, it is what it is, but I don't know what you call it. Right, yeah. I think um, uh, the the first time you and I met, which was maybe a month ago or so, I think we talked about Miles and um, uh, how he was, uh, the, the way I like to think of his contribution to music is sort of jazz existed in, uh, it's set patterns at the time. You had, you know, uh, bebop and um, big band music, and there were maybe a couple of other existing branches at the time. But he sort of looked at what there was and thought, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else." And he kind of opened opened a door for other musicians to f- uh, follow down a path, you know, a door that wasn't open before. Um, the album Kind of Blue being a good example of that as well, where um, he took, uh, he sort of simplified what was going on. He said, you know, um, let's go for something that's less complex, mm-hmm. um, has less chord changes or, uh, you know, less virtuosity and just make a statement using a, a really simple set of rules. And, um, you know, through reading interviews with jazz musicians at the time, they were like, oh my gosh, the, here's a whole new avenue that we can explore. And then you have people um, uh, going down that path afterwards. Um, Bitches Brew being another good example. Um, and... I remember reading a story, and this is anecdotal, uh, I believe it was in his autobiography, but I think um, I remember him um, talking about being invited to a White House dinner and sitting down at the table next to somebody who turned to him and asked him, oh, what did you do? Like, how did you get invited here? And he said, oh, I just changed music four or five times. And he did. And he did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not bragging if it's true, or no. whatever that is. He, he really did. Yeah. And when he, when he was a very young man, um, he studied at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And when he was studying classical music, he wouldn't necessarily put on a record. He'd bring out the sheet music and study the sheet music because right. he knew how to read music very right. well at that mm-hmm. point. So there's, there's that whole angle, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I guess that leads to another question I have. You don't restrict yourself to one genre of music. Right. Foggy Roots doesn't sound like what you did with Graham Durovich, doesn't sound like, you know, so on and so forth. Right. Um, is that is that a conscious choice? Or is it an example of a musician has to be able to play whatever? Or some musicians will play one thing and one thing only. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing, but it's not what you do. Right. Conscious choice of necessity or, or what? Um, I think... Uh, one of my early goals setting out to be a professional musician was to um, <clears throat> make myself uh, to, to get the skills that I would need to be able to sort of hang or um, be competent in any musician in any musical setting I found myself and in doing so um, I wanted to be the guy that musicians would call to make them sound good so that the guy who does the one thing when they're, you know, when they're thinking like, okay, who do we, you know, who do we hire to make the music real? They would think of me and, and call me. Um, that was my angle back then. And so um, I think the goal was to, be a competent reader so that you can step into any um, into a reading situation. Um, be able to learn songs quickly and accurately, um, and be able to do the style a bit of justice. Um, uh, so, learning the appropriate classical phrasing or the you know the correct articulation to play. Um, bass in a reggae band um, where you know they have like just the right amount of space between the notes the notes aren't too short they're not too long there's there should be just a, a s small bit of silence in between each note in a in a repeating pattern like like that's a, a typical reggae bass line but it's not it's and those notes have a very specific shape um, so being able to um, I guess imitate sounds um, uh, being able to imitate rhythms and then I, again just trying to you know insert myself into as many situations as possible um, is has what led me to where I am now, I guess. So conscious choice, a bit of necessity, a bit of like, how do I actually make a living doing this um, without being the front man, the guy who has the brand who says, this is what I do. And that's not what you want. Right. That's not, that's, that's never been what I, you know, my goal. You may have covered this in that answer, but let me, let me ask it anyway. You've talked about what your ear is doing mm -hmm. when you're playing in foggy roots or playing in a jazz band. Um, but is to take a different frame of mind, a different mental outlook, as well as an educated ear? I think the biggest mental switch that I notice is when I have to go from reading to improvising on a gig and switch back and forth. Um, I think that those two things uh, access a different enough part of the brain that I notice that my brain has to work differently, and sometimes it's 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 sort of hard. I'm like within the same piece, right? Uh, or, or not, not necessarily um, for, within a piece, but also maybe within like from piece to piece. So if I have to read one piece and then I have to improvise a different one and switch back and forth like that, I think that's the most that's uh, uh, the biggest mental switch. Um, but other than that, um, it's all music. It's all made of rhythms and uh, sounds and silences and the same 12 notes. Um, and, you know, I think if you were to go to a, a different culture or from a different part of the world, 
you would run into um, a, a different set of sounds that for me would be very, very un unfamiliar. Different and, set of notes and sounds. Yeah, exactly. Sounds. Indian music. Indian music. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, Indo Indonesian gamelan as well, mm -hmm. which um, uh, sounds out of tune to a Western ear, but it's yeah. that's that's what it's supposed that's, to sound like. That's their and our music probably sounds out of tune to that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and nowadays, I think you have uh, more sort of global cross pollination, and um, the the music sounds less familiar, uh, less unfamiliar um, as you move around the world. But you still find. Um, uh, find styles and things that you sort of have to spend a bit of time with before you can appreciate what's going on. It sounds strange or 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 dissonant or you know whatever. You can sort of pick any any other kind of maybe not disparaging adjective, but um, it can be it can be jarring walking into a, a really unfamiliar soundscape and trying to figure out what's going on. When you were playing 30 or 40 feet away from Joan Baez, mm -hmm. playing her songs in front of her, um, were you thinking about that while you were playing? I actually, thank you for bringing that up. I did want to clarify. So in that particular situation, I was, um, uh, I was actually accompanying a group of high school students. These are students who uh, have recently received scholarships from Muzak, uh, which is a company that you may be familiar with. They yeah, sort Donic of Carey. yeah, Donut Carey, and and their mission Northern is to Nath, sort of like, you know, uh, make music available, make instruments available to kids, and um, so these kids uh, were uh, got some scholarships um, to forward their musical studies through Muzak, and um, they were asked to perform for Joan Baez, and I was. Uh, um, honored to be asked, but uh, asked to sort of coach the ensemble, if you will. I was uh, me and my colleague and, Floyd and play bass. Uh, yeah, in on one song, I did I did play bass because um, uh, it was sort of the the right musical decision. Um, I. Um, uh, you know, we had five kids to work with, and we had to cover these three Joan Baez songs. And um, there was one song where the the role of the bass player wasn't being covered, so I stepped in. Um, and I should also uh, mention my colleague Floyd Floyd Kellogg there as well, um, who was my sort of co-conspirator, uh, co um, co-teacher in that situation. And yeah, so we coached um, a group of kids for a couple of weeks and prepped them on three songs. And I mean, it was, um, to go back to the question, the experience of playing for Joan Baez, um, it's, it, it, was, it was really interesting because you sort of recognize that, yeah, it's a, it's a, the experience has a bit of weight and gravity, but um, I think in the moment, and for me, this is always the case. It's just you focus on the you focus on what you have to do. You know, it's got to hit the sea at the bridge. Um, You're so busy doing it, you don't exactly. have time to think about it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but when it was over, did you think, "Oh my God!" I just played a song Joan Baez wrote and sang, and she was right there. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was it was really neat. Um, and. Uh, the, the audience was singing along at one point, as was Joan, and, and it was it was a, a really sweet experience, for sure. Were, were there any, let's start with bass players, were there any bass players aside from Les Claypool uh, who had a big influence on you either, either you liked them or they influenced your playing or both? Sure, yeah, the other name that comes immediately to mind is Victor Wooten. Um, who, in my mind, and I believe that there are a large number of musicians who would agree with me on this, um, uh, Victor Wooten is one of the, the bassists who changed the way the instrument was played. Like there's um, Jaco Pistorius being the other one. There's sort of yeah. bass playing before Jaco Pistorius, and then Jaco Pistorius came and sort of floored everybody with the way his approach to bass guitar. 
um, in the 70s, maybe 60s. And then uh, Victor Wooten was the next guy to do it in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and um, beyond uh, his bass playing, which is, uh, he's, so uh, he's one of the, one of three people who have sort of given me, given me that sort of stunned experience where you're just sort of sitting in front of your speakers with your jaw on the floor and you like can't move and um, just kind of over, yeah, I guess overcome with the power of the music in that particular situation. Um, Victor Wooten, Les Claypool, and Miles Davis uh, were the three people who gave me that um, that experience. But so beyond Victor's bass playing, I think it's his approach to um, uh, maybe a more spiritual aspect of music and playing music and... Um, I think the way he uh, the way he treats other people, the way he lives his life is is a really um, it's it's model in a lot of ways. A pastorius, so for those who aren't familiar with him, he did a lot of solo recordings, but he was also a member of the jazz rock band uh, Weather Report. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and Victor Wooten played with Bela Fleck at one point, but. I, I can't tell you where else he played. Um, I think uh, in recent years, since the Bela Fleck uh, ensemble, he has mostly been a soloist. I think he has a, a really big following among bass mm. players and tours under his own name, records under his own name. Um, he's actually, uh, he and Stanley Clark, um, who's another uh, famous jazz bass player, were uh, some of the bass players who would tour with a bass player in their band because everybody would go and want to hear them solo so they needed somebody else to actually play do the role of the bassist in their bands um, which is kind of a funny funny turn of events there for them what about piano players piano players it's interesting so with bass players i've never really found another bass player who I liked enough that I wanted to imitate them. I've always been really happy with my own bass player, bass playing. I'm, I've, I've said that I'm. When people ask me who my favorite bass player is, it's, it's I usually like what I do. Um, but with piano players, um, there are a number of them who, since I've been studying piano, um, who. I, I love the way they play. Uh, on the classical side of things, there's a woman named uh, Simone Dinnerstein, who's a New York-based pianist. And um, I particularly like her approach to Bach in that um, it has all the sort of romantic lyricism, uh, but um, there's rhythmic drive that makes you feel like you're listening to uh, a rock band. So it's sort of a marriage of the, the, the uh, two different approaches of music that you don't always find in the same classical music performance. You don't always find that same rhythmic precision along with that melodic lyricism. Um, on the jazz side of things, um, Vince Guaraldi has always been a favorite of mine. And... Uh, maybe certain recordings of Bill Evans's um, I didn't I don't like everything that he did but um, there are a few of his recordings that are um, among my top favorites um, Keith Jarrett um, yeah so there, there's a there's a few of them and the list grows, I think, the more I listen to piano players. In the time we have left, I want you to talk about conducting okay. the community big band. Yeah. Because that's a different set of musical skills in, in, in many ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, the community big band is a is a is a fun project. I've been doing that for about ten years now, and um, I think of it as sort of like a, a teaching situation almost. You know, we're we're there, and we kind of uh, anybody is welcome in the uh, in the in the band, um, provided you have a little bit of uh, reading ability and um, know your way around your instrument to a certain extent. Um, it's the I think the level is sort of intermediate level high school band charts. Uh, that's about where that's sort of the happy place for that group. Um, and um, but so with that ensemble, and I think this goes for all of my teaching, it's finding a way to explain the music that makes sense for the people who are there. Um, and uh, identify the, the, maybe the portions of a specific piece that need the most attention and figuring out an effective strategy to practice those. And um, those skills all come from my own practice because, you know, I think in order to be a, a versatile musician, you have to be a really effective um, practicer, for lack of a better word. Um, so you have to be able to identify what's working, what's not working, and you have to figure out how to, uh, how to fix any problems. So um, the skills that I get from my own practice are what I bring to... Um, I think all of my teaching situations where in the case of the community band, we'll play through a piece and some of it sounds good, but this passage doesn't. So we've got to pick that apart and maybe the trumpets need a little bit of work. Maybe the saxophones need a little bit of work or maybe there's something going on in the rhythm section that needs addressing. Did you receive training in, in conducting when you were at Cornish? Nope, no training in conducting, no. Um, uh, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I think by the time we show up on stage with the community big band and in most of the situations that I work in as a conductor, um, the, the musicians are familiar enough with the music that um, I don't really need to do much cueing at all. Um, so maybe the, the in, in the traditional sense, I'm not much of a conductor. I just sort of, um, uh, I'm sort of a rehearsal facilitator. Um, but if you weren't there to do the conducting, it would sound quite different, I suspect. Quite different. It's, it's possible. I try to make sure that um, with all of my ensembles that the music is secure enough that um, it could function in, in any you know, in, under any set of circumstances. Um, but typically, um, I'm playing bass in that ensemble, so... Yeah, I think if I weren't playing bass, it would sound pretty different. Um, and when I'm not playing bass, so yeah, I'll, I'll give a few cues here or there. Um, so, it's hard to say. I think I'd have to step out of that ensemble and then see what happens in order to answer your question correctly. <laughs> uh, final question. Recording? Sure. Um, I've never uh, pursued it. Never? Nope. No. Well, we can see you on YouTube. Yes. In, in various settings. Yeah. But um, you don't have CDs of yourself or computer files of yourself uh, that uh, no. you've heard and we haven't? Um, there are a few things, yeah. Um, just little, uh, I guess, I, I do have a home recording set up and I sort of put a few things together, but um, uh, it, I guess that's more for, more as a piece of the practice process than anything else. Um, I usually record in preparation to perform live. Um, so either um, 
performing a piece of the music and then playing along with that or um, recording myself to uh, listen back and, and check and see how it sounds. I'm curious, when, when you're at home or in playing in a gig of some kind, um, do you ever use an electronic piano? By which I mean those pianos that sound like real pianos, but they're not. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, um, I have a keyboard, a fairly nice uh, digital piano at home, and um, I think usually when you're playing out as a keyboard player in a band, it's pretty rare that you'll have access to a, a an acoustic piano yeah. um, or one that's in good shape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Nigel Glass, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, I, yeah. I hate to cut this off. I think we could probably talk for three or four hours. But yeah, we could. Maybe there'll be another time in the future. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for asking. Too. I do too. For Channel 18, Nantucket Community Television, I'm Charlie Walters. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again.